And we are in chapter 1 of the Gospel of Mark again this week. I'd like to read from a passage here in Gospel of Mark chapter 1. We're just getting started in our series here, Gospel of Mark, and uh, this is our fourth series, our fourth sermon, rather, in this uh, passage of Scripture. We're going to begin to read in verse 9, where we picked up last week, and uh, going to read up through uh, uh, verse 28. So, Mark chapter 1, verse 9, It came to pass in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up from the water, he saw the heavens parting and the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. Then a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Immediately the Spirit drove him into the wilderness, and he was there in the wilderness forty days, tempted by Satan, and was with the wild beasts, and the angels ministered to him. Now after John was put in prison... Jesus came to Galilee, preaching the gospel of the kingdom of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. And as he walked by the sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew his brother casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. Then Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. When he had gone a little farther from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who who also were in the boat, mending their nets. And immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went after him. Then they went to Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and taught. And they were astounded at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Now there was a man in their synagogue with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, saying, Let us alone. What have we to do with you, Jesus of Nazareth? Did you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be quiet and come out of him. And when the unclean spirit had convulsed him and cried out with a loud voice, he came out of him. Then they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this? What new doctrine is this? For with authority he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And immediately his fame spread throughout all the region around Galilee. You know, one of the earliest motivations in the human heart, a motivation that expresses itself almost from the beginning of life, is the motivation to achieve power. Power over people, power over my circumstances, power over my surroundings, power over my life and everybody else's life. And that, of course, is is a reflection of our sin nature, that, that my life is all about me, myself, and I, and anybody who gets in the way of that is going to face my wrath or at least openly my voiced or my openly voiced irritation. Because dying to self is definitely not part of the old nature, as the Apostle Paul calls it. My motivation to exert my power over everything is at the root of my sinful heart. That motivation is easily seen in little children's behavior, in competition between siblings. We call it sibling rivalry generally. 
in conflicts on the job, in irritations between neighbors, in political wars, in interpersonal conflicts with marriage and other relationships. It, it is the quest for power to be in control. Human beings hopefully learn to kind of keep a lid on that self-centered quest for power. Uh, we learn it through family life and parental guidance and the laws of society and, and, uh, and, and hopefully uh, other outside guidance that will hopefully keep our quest for power under control so we don't spend our lives, by God's grace, trampling on everyone around us verbally, emotionally, and even physically. And one of the ways that human beings express the desire for power is through religion. Humans often select a religion because of what they think it will give them. We want health, we want wealth, we want comfort, we want peace in our circumstances. And so I'm going to gravitate to whatever religious activity I think will give me that. And if I pray certain prayers, many people will say, if I pray certain prayers and I do certain ceremonies or I participate in certain religious activities, then through that means uh, maybe I can get more money and a better position or a better life or improved health. And that's, that's the religion for me. If I, if, as long as I can live however I want and do whatever I want and be in control of my own life, then that's the religion I want. That's why some folks are atheists, supposedly. Atheism has always been an interesting, illogical position in my mind. How can you be against someone that you don't think exists? Have to think about that a minute. How can you be against someone that you don't think exists? It doesn't really make logical sense, but, but, but regardless, that's why some folks reject the notion of God. He didn't do what they think he should have done, or they think God isn't fair to them, or God hasn't corrected the problems that they think there are in the world, or hasn't corrected them the way that they think God should have corrected them. So they reject God, and they create their own religion in their own mind, and that religion is no God. Then I'm in control. I have no one to answer to, no one to judge me, no one to tell me what to do or how to live, and, and, and I have personal power over my own life, supposedly, to do whatever I want. Another expression of this quest for power comes from people who are very religious. Because there are many folks out there recognize that, that there are spiritual powers out there. A god or gods, spirits, forces, angels, demons, a devil, maybe all of those things. And if I can get on the good side of those spiritual powers, then maybe they'll give me what I want and I can be in control of my life. So I will give offerings, I'll make sacrifices, I'll be nice, I'll be religious, and then all the spiritual forces out there will be on my side and my problems will be solved and my quest for power will be satisfied because life will be what I want it to be. Now you may be thinking, wait now, doesn't the Bible say that God will bless me if I obey Him? Yes, it actually does. But God blessing me is not the same thing as God giving me whatever I want. God blessing me is not God aligning all the forces of the universe so that they're on my side. God blessing me means that the sovereign ruler of the universe, the one and only true and living God, who is also gracious and merciful to his children, that God arranges the circumstances of my life for my eternal good and for his eternal glory. That is God blessing me. Sometimes 
That involves hardship and heartache and challenges and difficulties and losses. And even in those circumstances, the true and living God is still there. He still forgives those who come to him by faith in the Lord Jesus. He still grants eternity in heaven with him. This, this life is not all there is, praise God. Heaven awaits those who have trusted in Christ. We who know Christ are not in control of our lives. And if we understand God's word properly, we don't want to be in control of our lives because we know who is in control and we're okay with that. So we trust and obey and submit to the Lord's direction in our lives and we focus on the next life, not on this one. So we lay up treasure in heaven, as Jesus said, where moth and rust does not corrupt and thieves do not break in and steal because Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have no need to be on this worldly quest for power because we belong to the true and living God who has all power and He is going to give us what He wants to give us and He's going to take us where He wants to take us and we will spend eternity enjoying the glories of heaven. And on the other side of this life, when we look back, the Apostle Paul said in the book of Corinthians, the sufferings of this life will not be worthy to be compared to the the glories that are waiting for us in heaven. So every person must decide whether they're going to live for themselves or whether they're going to live for God. Will I try to control my life or will I submit to God? Will I try to manipulate the spiritual forces in the universe to be on my side or will I bow in submission to the sovereign God of heaven and earth who is the greatest power in the universe and will I trust him? Every human being on this earth is on one path or the other. I'm either going to live for me or I'm going to live for God. Now you may be thinking, okay, Larry, what does all this have to do with these verses in Mark? Thank you for asking. I got an answer for that. This universe is filled with spiritual forces. There is a literal devil. There are real demons. Evil is everywhere. Judgment is coming. This life is filled with hardships and tragedies and struggles. And this life is temporary. Nobody lives forever. There is one inescapable statistic. Sooner or later, one out of one dies. So if I have any hope, for grace and peace and forgiveness and security in, in this, in, if I have in any hope at all after this short life is over, I'd better look to the greatest power in the universe for help, and I'd better do what he says to get on the right side of his side in this great cosmic war for truth. I'm a sinner. I need a Savior. I want a Savior who has all power. I want a Savior who knows what he's doing. I need a Savior who can guarantee what He has promised. Because if I think that I can resolve all my issues on my own, I am toast, literally. And that is the Savior that Mark is presenting to us in these verses. A Savior with all power. A Savior with a plan. A Savior with a purpose. Last week we saw the ultimate presentation of the Lord Jesus to the people as the Son of God, and all three members of the Trinity were there, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Savior of the world was being presented to all who were there. 
God expressing to the eyes and the ears who Jesus was as we developed all those thoughts about Jesus' baptism. They see the baptism. They see the Holy Spirit descend. They hear the voice of the Father. That was Jesus' first public appearance as the Messiah, identifying with the kingdom of God, identifying with sinners needing redemption, affirmed as God the Son by the Father and the Holy Spirit. Now he's ready to begin his ministry. And immediately after Jesus' baptism, the Holy Spirit sends Jesus to a big crowd of people for his first great revival sermon, right? Remember what we just read? No, that's not what he does. Just seeing if you're awake today, okay. What the Holy Spirit does is he sends Jesus to the middle of nowhere for a spiritual war with the devil. The scripture says there in verse 12, immediately the spirit drove him into the wilderness. That means he compelled him, he urged him to travel into an uninhabited wild place for 40 days to be harassed by the devil. Now in Mark's condensed version of these events, he leaves out a number of details, of course, but we want to compare Matthew's account because there are some important facts that I want us to consider. So turn, if you would, to Matthew 4, verses 1 through 11. Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. The important question is this, can the Son of God meet and conquer his arch enemy? Can the Son of God go through the most sneaky assault that Satan can devise? He will never be able to establish his kingdom if he cannot conquer Satan. He must be able to crush the serpent's head, to use that language of Genesis 3.15. Some of you remember from our earlier studies, uh, uh, that first promise of the Redeemer, that the, that the serpent was going to bruise the heel of the Messiah, and he was going to crush his head. The Messiah was going to crush the serpent's head, meaning Satan. So he's got to be able to crush the serpent's head. He's got to be able to destroy the works of the devil, as the Apostle John put it, if he is going to establish his kingdom, because Satan currently is called the God of this world. And we're going to see here that Jesus Christ has the power to overcome Satan when he is at his very weakest in the most isolated circumstance imaginable. So let's read these verses, verses 1 through 11 in Matthew 4. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterward he was hungry. Of course he would be. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. But he answered and said, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Bible students who've looked at that place say it's probably several hundred feet, maybe a 400 foot drop. Throw yourself down for it is written, He'll give his angels charge over you and in their hands they will bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, It is written again, You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. 
Then Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Now Mark doesn't tell us what Matthew and Luke tell us, that this, that, that's this, that Jesus went without food for the entire 40 days. Mark just says he was in the wilderness 40 days. Matthew and Luke both say he did not eat for 40 days. You see that here in verse 2, also in Luke chapter 4 and verse 2. 40-day fasts have happened before. Not very often. According to Exodus chapter 34, Moses had a fasted for 40 days on the Mount Sinai with God. According to 1 Kings 19, Elijah had a 40-day fast. That's a long time, almost six weeks of eating nothing. So Jesus in the wilderness here, 40 days alone, he would have water to drink, but okay, no food. 40 days alone, 40 days of isolation, 40 days in a dangerous wilderness area. When Mark says he was with the wild beasts, he doesn't mean rabbits and ravens. He means jackals and lions and scorpions and snakes, etc. Wild beasts are creatures that can hurt you or kill you. So Jesus is there 40 days alone, 40 days in isolation, 40 days in a dangerous wilderness area, plus 40 days with nothing to eat. So you have no support system, no one to help you, no one to encourage you. And when Jesus is at his lowest possible physical condition, his strength would be gone long before week six. It would begin to diminish. Most medical scientists tell us his strength would begin to, to, to diminish very seriously by the end of the second week. But if Jesus is going to be the king, he must be able alone and at his weakest to conquer the enemy. And so the Holy Spirit sends him into that conflict. But he's not only going to be the king, ultimately reigning over everything, but he's also described in the Bible as the suffering servant. As a king, he's exalted. As a suffering servant, he's humbled. The king is also the suffering servant. That's what all of Jesus' disciples missed during his earthly ministry. It was prophesied all over the Old Testament. Isaiah spoke very clearly of the Messiah being a suffering servant, but they all missed it until after the resurrection. The one who will be the most exalted is also the one who will suffer the most. That's an interesting spiritual principle. You don't have, you don't have glory without suffering. And the Lord Jesus Christ, who will be the most exalted, will also be the one who suffers the most. Because in God's kingdom, suffering and glory go hand in hand. But think with me for a moment about this event. Many of you probably recognize Satan's approach. Uh, the Apostle John spoke in 1 John 2 about those three aspects of the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. That's the approach that Satan took with Eve. The fruit was lovely to look at. It was good for food. It would make her wise. So, he, so he, he, he comes at her with that lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life approach. Look at this fruit, Eve. It, it, it's beautiful fruit. It's good for food. It's going to make you wise. Of course, he was lying. Now, Satan approaches Jesus in a similar way. But, there, but there's something even deeper than, than this. I, I, you know, I, I can hardly believe that Satan actually thought he could get Jesus to sin. 
Because he knows exactly who Jesus is and what he came to do. And he has been fighting the plan of God since the Garden of Eden. And I know you remember, I have preached this to you for years, that Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. He was not a 50-50 blend of human and divine. He was fully God and fully human. And he had to be in order to be the perfect Savior. He had to satisfy the justice of God against sin. He had to be perfectly sinless. He had to be totally human in order to be our substitute. A human has to die for other humans. But that human has to be a sinless human or he'd be paying for his own sin instead of being the innocent substitute for our sin. So it was impossible for the Lord Jesus to actually violate God's law. But you may remember from our study in Philippians many, many months ago that when God the Son came to earth, He voluntarily laid aside the exercise of some of His divine attributes. He did not hang on, Philippians 2 tells us, He did not hang on to the visible glory of God, but He humbled Himself and temporarily accepted the limitations of a human body. Theologians call it the kenosis, the word just, it's a Greek word that means the, the, the emptying. That Jesus voluntarily laid aside the exercise of some of his divine attributes and he temporarily accepted the limitations of a human body. So Jesus got hungry. Jesus got tired. Jesus got thirsty. Jesus felt pain. Jesus experienced exhaustion, etc., He accepted all of the limitations of a human body. And he did this voluntarily, Philippians 2 tells us. God the Son, the creator of the universe, who had experienced all of the glories of God, all of the glories of being God in heaven, he was willing to lay aside some of that and be humbled, living in this human world in order to be our Savior. So do you see, I want you to see with me, what what is Satan trying to get Jesus to do? He's not tempting him to stop being God. That's impossible. He says to him, you are the son of God. You can create, turn these stones into bread. You're the son of God. Throw yourself off off this pinnacle of the temple, several hundred foot drop. The angels will catch you. Then everyone will recognize who you are. You're the Son of God. You're going to possess all these kingdoms one day. Just bow down to me for a few seconds. You can have them now. You're going to get them anyway. You see, Satan was not tempting Jesus to stop being God. He was tempting him to stop being human. Jesus voluntarily laid aside the exercise of some of his divine attributes. As we said, he temporarily accepted the limitations of a human body, and Satan was tempting him to forget the limitations of his humanness and take back his divine rights. You're the Son of God. You don't have to be hungry. I mean, come on. You're the Son of God. You don't have to be hungry. Just turn these stones into bread. You don't have to be exhausted. You don't have to hurt. You don't have to wait for the kingdoms. Just just quit this human stuff and, and, and just be the Son of God. That's who you are. And if Jesus had done that, if he had reversed his kenosis, the emptying, he could not have been our Savior. 
That was Satan's ploy. That was Satan's strategy. He could not change who Jesus was as God, and he knew it. So he would try at Jesus' lowest human moment, weak and starving and exhausted, to taunt Jesus into exercising divine powers that Jesus had voluntarily laid aside so he could be a humbled human and be our Savior. So Jesus went from being exalted by God the Father at his baptism to being compelled by the Spirit into a 40-day isolation to face the devil in hand-to-hand spiritual combat and win. Jesus was willing to be emptied. He was willing to be hungry and weak and exhausted. He was willing to endure the limitations of a human body and suffer as a servant doing the will of the Father. He was willing to do that for us. Hallelujah. Now we're just going to breeze over these next verses and expand a little bit more next week. But after this great victory, Jesus begins his public ministry. And back there in Mark chapter 1, it says right after Jesus came out of the wilderness those 40 days, he comes into Galilee. He's preaching the gospel of the kingdom. The message of John the Baptist had begun. The kingdom is coming. Repent and believe. Then he begins calling his disciples, gathering those who would carry on after him. He calls uh, Peter and Andrew and James and John and, and others as, as we read through the passage of it. Right there in Mark 1, that's who he calls. He demonstrates teaching authority that is recognized by those who heard him. They say, wow, this guy, this guy teaches like somebody who really knows what he's talking about. It's not like the scribes. Jesus uh, exercises authority over demon spirits that he exercises at will just by the word of his mouth. You know, it's an interesting irony. This I just was reading this the other day, and I, I think that they're exactly right. You know, it, it's just an interesting, ironic thing. That during the first year of Jesus' ministry, nobody was totally sure exactly who he was except for the demons. Everybody else was amazed at this brilliant young rabbi who was maybe a prophet, certainly a great teacher, the Messiah, maybe. Oh, but oh, but the demons, they knew exactly who he was. And, they, and right there in Mark 1, that one the demon says, Oh, Holy One of God, have you come to destroy us already? Their doom is sealed, and they know it. And they know who is going to judge them. Everybody else was interested, but not quite sure what was going on with Jesus. But the demons knew exactly who Jesus was from day one. So remember, this universe is filled with spiritual forces. There is a literal devil. There are real demons. Evil is everywhere. Judgment is coming. This life is filled with hardships and tragedies and struggles. And this life is only temporary. Nobody lives forever because we've got that one inescapable statistic. Sooner or later, one out of one dies. So if I have any hope for grace and peace and forgiveness and security in eternity after this short life is over, then I had better look to the greatest power in the universe for help. And I'd better do what he says to get on his side in this great cosmic war for truth. Because I am a sinner and I need a savior. And I want a savior who has all power. And I want a savior who knows what he's doing. And I need a savior who can guarantee what he has promised. Because if I think I can resolve all my issues, issues on my own. I am toast. Literally. And that's the Savior that Mark presents to us in these verses. 
a Savior with the affection and approval of God the Father, a Savior with the, the, the power to defeat the devil, a Savior who can conquer sin, a Savior with a clear message and a plan for the gospel message to endure through the generations, a Savior with a purpose, a Savior with the authority to rebuke the powers of darkness, a Savior who can guarantee what He promised, a Savior that we can trust with our souls for all of eternity. So every person here, every person in the world, has to decide whether they will live for themselves or live for God. Will I try to control my life or will I submit to God? Will I try to manipulate the spiritual forces in the universe to be on my side or will I bow in submission to the sovereign God of heaven and earth who is the greatest power in the universe and will I trust him because every human being is going to be on one path or the other. You remember the old gospel song, All to Jesus I Surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. All to Jesus I surrender. Lord, I give myself to thee. Fill me with thy love and power. Let thy blessing fall on me. I surrender all. I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. I surrender all. Have you surrendered your all to the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we are surrounded by so much spiritual confusion. And Lord, there are a lot of spiritual forces out there. There are a lot of things that can lead us astray. There are a lot of things in this life that we have no control over. So help us, Lord, to submit to the greatest power in all of the universe. The true and living God of heaven and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank You, Lord, for all that You are, and all that You do, and all that You have demonstrated to us over and over and over again. Lord, I don't know anyone's heart here today. I know that undoubtedly many of the folks here truly know You as their Savior. They've come to You. They have surrendered their all. They have bowed before You. Others, Lord, may be thinking about it, may be wondering about it, maybe haven't really made that commitment to the Lord Jesus Christ, haven't really pledged their allegiance to the Lord Jesus. We pray, Father, that they would bow the knee and submit to Him even today. And Lord, for those who know the Lord, but they're maybe not as committed as they ought to be. We're like the disciples there in Matthew 26. We... We make all sorts of grandiose statements of what we're going to do and how we're going to do this and I'll never deny you and on and on it goes. And yet when crunch time came, they all forsook him and fled. As Jesus said, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. May we, Father, through our fellowship with other believers, through our study of the word of God, may we strengthen our spirits and resolve to keep our commitments to the Lord Jesus. May we surrender our all to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.